Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. Spectrum features conversations with fascinating people. Some are famous and some aren't, but the common thread is that they all have captivating stories. Today we're talking with Rita Sorenen, CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. The foundation recently celebrated its 10,000th adoption of a child from foster care. The foundation concentrates on finding homes for those who have been in foster care the longest and older children who might turn 18 without ever being adopted. We talk about the foundation and how it had to pivot during the COVID-19 pandemic to continue its mission. Rita, you're CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. First of all, Tell us what that is, and you've just hit a major milestone, 10,000 adoptions from foster care. We have. Thank you. And the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption is a national nonprofit public charity, and and we like to refer to ourselves as a one-trick pony. We have a singular focused mission, which is to dramatically increase the adoptions from North America's foster care system. But that's very specific to children who are in foster care, who have been freed for adoption, and who simply need now those adults to step forward and claim them as their own. Um, you know, the day that uh, a child is separated from their family of birth, our promise to them is that we will find them a family, which is the birthright of every child. And so we very aggressively work in a number of ways to do that. We raise awareness about the fact that here in this country, there are about 120,000 children in foster care. They're there through no fault of their own, been abused, neglected, abandoned. And the abuse has risen to, to such a level and gone through the system in such a way that they, these children have now been permanently severed from their birth family. Um, and so we focus on those children to raise awareness about the fact that they're there waiting for families. We provide resources and educational materials that surround this conversation, but then we implement an evidence-based program, the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program, that um, supports adoption professionals across the United States um, that work on behalf of those children who are most at risk of aging out of care without a family. And we know that that population is teenagers, 
children uh, in sibling groups, children with special needs. And the one that, that still causes me the just the most anxiety is those children who've been in foster care for so long that they resist efforts at family. They push back. They say, no, thank you. Let me just get out of this system. And that's that milestone we've talked about. We've had this program in place as a pilot project early in 2004 and have grown it to such a level that it now has a footprint in all 50 states. And it is um, scaled, so taken to that level where we're serving all of the children that could benefit from it in 10 states. And so since 2004, we have finalized the adoptions of 10,000 children, but that's been on a trajectory that's really elevated over the past five years as we've taken this program to scale. And when you think about it, that's 10,000 children who are now with families, 10,000 families that were formed, 10,000 children that no longer have to worry about, am I going to have to move to another home? Am I going to have to go to another school? Will I even leave this system with a family? So we're taking this day to celebrate that milestone, but we know we still have a lot more work to do. The story behind your foundation, Dave Thomas, many people may know, was uh, the founder of uh, the Wendy's uh, food franchises across the, the country. You mentioned the Wendy's Wonderful Kids program. However, talk about you being an independent foundation because sometimes I think that gets conflated. It does because of our name, because of our association with the Wendy's company. Some folks think we're a corporate foundation or a family foundation. But Dave Thomas was very wise in creating this as an independent nonprofit organization because that means we'd have to go out and talk to the public about this cause in order to raise funds like any other nonprofit. But in doing so, we help elevate the awareness of this cause day after day after day. And so I think he was incredibly, incredibly visionary first. He had an adoption story himself. He was adopted. And so he had a passion for this conversation. But he also understood at a business level that we had to be a nonprofit organization to advance the cause. Talk about the adoption of a foster child and how that's different than the adoption of a newborn. I think m most people think, well, adoption is of babies or younger children, and that's the market. Um, you're dealing with an entire different group of adoption. Um, is it a hard sell? You know, it's it's not so much a hard sell anymore. It's leaping over the myths and misperceptions or, or making sure that um, folks, when they're thinking about adopting, first know that there are children in foster care that are available for adoption. And so you're right. I think when we first start that adoption conversation, what immediately comes to mind is infants, either domestic infant adoption or international infant adoption. And make no mistake, at the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, we believe that every child, no matter their circumstance, deserves to have a family. But there's this particular conversation about foster care that brings up these feelings or misperceptions or ideas of who these children are, what the system is. Oh, the system's too complicated. I couldn't possibly step into it. Or these children are too old or they've been through too much. They couldn't, they couldn't, you know, move to a family and live with us. We're too different from them. We didn't have a chance to mold them um, from infancy on. And so we have to, we have to begin to explain that, wait a minute. These children are, are incredibly creative, talented, viable 
individuals who deserve a family. They've just had a rough start in life. And we can't penalize them because of the background or the journey that they've experienced. Whether they're five years old or 15 years old, they deserve a family. And then we try and personalize that. You know, Remember yourself at 12 or at 15. Um, you may have wanted to be on your own, but there was nothing like having family to come home to in times of distress or crisis or joy and celebration. And so we walk them through the process that, yes, it's a government system you have to jump into in order to begin to think about being a foster parent or an adopt ad, an adoptive parent from foster care but that it's a process that can be learned it can be it can be accomplished um, so yes it's a very different process from maybe connecting with a birth mother and and following that journey as she gives birth and then an adoption occurs um, but it's the kind of journey that brings texture and value to a family. Um, you know, there are a lot of families that don't want to deal with diapers again, that don't want to <laughs> deal with midnight feedings again, right? They may have already raised children and they understand this, this odd creature that's a, a teenager. They understand and enjoy that, that stage of development. And so we appeal to everyone, but we also appeal to those people, single parents, you know, people that may be thinking, now's the time to adopt, but I'm not so certain about a baby. Talk about the the stigma that I think, uh, as a layperson, is associated with foster children. I think too often people uh, wrongly assume that the child is a troubled child, that the child would be trouble to bring in the home. Uh, it's the circumstances that have forced the child into foster care, not the child itself. That's exactly it. We know from research that we do every few years to assess Americans' attitudes toward children in foster care. The last one that we did a couple of years ago, nearly 50% of Americans believe children are in care because they've done something wrong and they actually label them juvenile delinquents, right? Well, nothing could be farther from the truth. The reality is these are children who've been abused. They've been neglected. They've potentially moved from home to home and school to school. They have no reason to trust adults in their lives. And so sometimes when they land in yet another foster care placement, they may be acting out. They may be experiencing and expressing the distress that they have had in their life. And they don't know any other way to, to do that other than in ways and behaviors that we might think are negative behaviors. But if you dig under the trauma that they've experienced, we understand that. But then we sort of um, say, okay, for all kids in foster care, they must be too old, too damaged, and too dangerous to live in my house. We have to dig under that and understand their trauma, understand their journey, and dispel that notion that therefore they're not worthy of a family, they couldn't possibly live in a family, because we see time and again you know, the average age of a child adopted through this program at the foundation is 13. We're getting 15-year-olds, 17-year-olds, sibling groups of four or five or six adopted, and they're thriving. That's what they need is that safety net of a family, the security of a family, the ability to make a mistake and not be punished for it by saying, well, we're going to have to move you to another home or you're not going to be suitable for a family. Sometimes it's the very frontline workers that work with these children that also hold some of those deeply held um, uh, notions about who these children are. So we work on both ends, making sure that the public understands who these children are, what that journey means, but also helping to educate those very workers and judges that 
that frankly make decisions on behalf of these children. If you talk about a family, uh, you're talking about a unified unit uh, that has today very broad definitions. But is it a misnomer that people think, well, if I have this child from infancy, uh, I'm going to have a closer tie to this child or my family is going to be more unified than if I take somebody older? Uh, that that seems to me to be faulty thinking, but maybe that's just me. Well, it, it's understandable thinking, perhaps, if, if folks haven't been surrounded by or experienced adoption in their life or know anyone close to them that has experienced an adoption journey. And so I understand that notion. But again, that's where we have to work to say, oh, my gosh, look at the fabric of America. Adoption has woven in and out of this country and, frankly, internationally from the beginning of time. We, as humans, we, we bring ourselves together. Together, right? We give comfort to those that need comfort. We bring people into our homes that need family. Adoption from foster care is just a formal, um, a formalization of that process. And so, uh, again, I do understand that notion that this child isn't mine because of blood. But believe me, what we see every day is these children become ours because of adoption, and and they 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 want to take on what is the tone of this family, what's the culture of this family. We also want to remember that children come from different circumstances, and if at all possible, we search for extended family members to to grab onto these children. There may be a brother or sister or an aunt or an uncle or a grandparent that can absolutely care for this child and adopt this child into their family. So that's that first level that we look at. Then we look at who surrounds this child already. Um, teachers, former foster parents, um, people in this child's life, best friends, families. So we want to be able to move a child where it's most comfortable. But if neither of those are an option for that child, then absolutely we're going to go to, you know, that extended circle of the community who among us will say, I'm going to claim this child is mine and they are part of my family. You mentioned earlier in our conversation about uh, a group called Wendy's Wonderful Kids Program. And you talked about, uh, if I wrote down the term correctly as you were chatting, and it was specially trained adoption recruiters. Can you tell us more about that? How does that work? You bet. And this was the program. It's branded Wendy's Wonderful Kids because our Wendy's partners, franchisees, corporate employees stepped forward when we had this notion in 2004 that we've got to do a better job. If our mission is to dramatically increase adoptions of children, we couldn't quantify that at that point. And so we created this child-focused recruitment program. That's the model behind that brand that says, why don't we dedicate our resources to helping agencies fill a gap. And that gap is financial and human resource gap. When we talk to organizations and ask them, why aren't you getting some of these children adopted? What's keeping you from doing your job, essentially? Why are children aging out of foster care when they've been freed for adoption and they're aging out without a family? We heard time and again, we don't have the human resources, we don't have the financial resources. As a foundation that gives grants to organizations, we 
regrouped strategically and said, perhaps this is where we need to really spend a, a good portion of our, our time and our resources. So we created this model that says, if we give you a grant agency X to hire a full-time adoption professional to respond to those two gaps you talked about, we want you to try this model that we've we've developed that was based on emerging best practices that said, uh, keep a smaller caseload of children, 12 to 15, fill that caseload with the longest waiting children in your agency, those children who are at most risk of aging out of care, and then put in place this strategy that we've developed that says, you know, do a deep dive into the child's case file. There are potential adoptive resources right there in front of you. Prepare the child for adoption. Help them understand what this means. Prepare the adoptive family. Help them understand the child's journey. Work with this child. Develop an ongoing trusting relationship, which means aggressive contact with this child so that they trust you and you begin to understand who they are. And out of this comes what appears to be magic, right? We find families for these children that everyone else had given up on. We actually see in the case file the words, this child is unadoptable. And those are the children we want for these caseloads because we know we can find them a family. So we started this as a pilot project, giving grants to seven organizations across the country in 2004. And we asked them to test this, help us figure out if this really does work. We asked our Wendy's partners, if you help us raise funds in your restaurants by engaging your customers, they sell um, coupon books for free Frosties. And those, those funds come back to the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption. And they do other efforts as well. So it's that sort of um, twofold bang for the buck. Not only are we increasing resources through this incredible platform that is Wendy's, but we're engaging the customers, the public in this conversation about foster care adoption. So we called the program Wendy's Wonderful Kids to um, to, to uh, recognize the great work that our Wendy's partners were doing. But over a very quick period of time, we were able to grow the program until um, now we are supporting um, nearly 500 of those Wendy's Wonderful Kids, full-time adoption prof wow. professionals across the United States and Canada. Um, and we're currently, today, there are more than 7,000 children that we're serving on those caseloads. There are another 700 who are in their pre-adoptive placement. They're just waiting for that final court hearing. Um, and then, of course, that 10,000 um, benchmark that we hit this week as well. We'll be back after this message. The Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University seeks to not only educate its students about today's communication industry, but to produce innovative leaders who will shape the future of communication and its methods of delivery in a rapidly changing technological landscape. Scripps provides leadership in communication by preparing students to be effective and responsible communicators in a global society and by advancing the field through creative activity and research. The Scripps College of Communication fosters multicultural awareness within a diverse community. It strives to create a climate of civility where leadership and innovation are prized and responsibility and accountability are understood. The college values curriculum, research, and creative activity that provide benefits to people regionally, nationally, and globally. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. 
you've used a term, and I want to make sure our audience understands it, and you've used the term aging out uh, of foster care. Uh, First of all, what does that mean, and how is that important to what you're doing? So when a child is in foster care, there are two two things that can happen. Children come into care because there's been an allegation of abuse or neglect. The majority of those kids go back home. Um, either services are put in place to help support that family to be safe, or, or an allegation perhaps just really wasn't justified. But for those children, the 125,000 children now in this country that have been legally freed for adoption, the family's gone through court hearings, the, the social service agencies have done everything they could possibly do to try and get that child back home, but it has been found by the court that that child cannot go home. The child's been legally severed from the family. Then the next step is the child welfare agency needs to put in place a strategy for finding this child an adoptive family. That's the goal, and that's the success marker. But for 20,000 children in this country, year over year over year, we fail them 20,000 times. We don't find them an adoptive family. And at 18 or in some states, 21, they leave the foster care system without a family, and that's called aging out of the system. And then they're they're basically on their own and homeless uh, in, in one way of describing, correct? Exactly. So, you know, sort of psychologically homeless. They don't now have a, a family to go home to, but we know that uh, one in five youth who do age out of foster care um, that first year out are physically homeless. They they couch surf. They're on the streets. They're looking for work. They're looking for a place to live. So again, not because these are bad kids, but the impact of aging out of foster care is a, a much higher risk of negative outcomes, of being undereducated, unemployed, early parents, moving back into systems, homelessness, all of those things that none of us want for our children, right? But we allow that to happen. And that's why this where this Wendy's Wonderful Kids program steps in and works to fill that gap. We want to eliminate that notion of aging out. We want to eliminate the misperception that, that 16-year-olds can't be adopted. Um, and we want to celebrate the fact that we can get these kids into permanent families and avoid those negative consequences in their life so that they have the safety net of family. Look, the need for family does not stop at 18, right? We right. all we right. all have fallen back on our families at 20, at 30, at 40, at Various stages of life, that's right. Exactly, exactly. I know that you work as advocates for the, the child and promote adoption, but you also I know you and your foundation do more than that. Talk about your work, if you would, on uh, putting a moratorium on the whole aging out process. Right. And particularly when the pandemic hit, look, we were really concerned. We, as an organization on March 17th, um, my entire staff, you know, moved to working from home. Um, And, and, but we very quickly realized that this has, of course, the pandemic's having a profound impact on everyone and globally. But when you think about children and youth in foster care and the impact that it was having on them, they're at a much more elevated risk of, of getting COVID for lots of reasons. Um, that additional layer of anxiety, um, family visits were paused, court hearings were paused or, 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 or stopped. All of those things that the child had come to 
at one level or another get used to in foster care suddenly had another layer of, of fear and frustration and anxiety. But the most critical to us were two things. Agencies were still letting kids age out of care. Well, how do you let a child, an 18-year-old, age out of care into a pandemic environment when jobs were being eliminated, when when finding housing difficult as it already was became impossible? No safety um, net at all. No safety net at all. And and they were at, you know, we were asking them to to manage this on their own with whatever minor resources we could help provide. And so we began talking to states, including um, right here in Ohio, about we've got to put some kind of time um, moratorium on letting kids age out of care. They've got to stay involved in the systems. And and although, you know, we, we weren't successful in all states, and, and it wasn't just us, we gathered a, a coalition of folks to engage in this conversation. But I think right now it's about 10 states that put an absolute moratorium on kids aging out of care, including Ohio. So that was good. But there was this other piece, too, for those kids who had already aged out of care, but they found a way to get to college, for example. Well, what happens when colleges close down? They didn't. And then they're in a dorm that closes down. They had, again, they had no place to go. So just elevating the awareness about the very special needs of our children and youth in foster care, what the impact of COVID was having on them, but particularly those who were aging out or who didn't have any place to go after they had already aged out. I want you to brag a little bit, if, if you would. Uh, your organization uh, and this whole issue of uh, adoption from foster care recently featured in the New York Times. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. You know, we work really hard to make sure that whatever publication it is, that we want to get the most people to recognize that this cause is important to focus on, that we need everybody jumping in. Not everybody can foster or adopt, but everybody can be aware of this issue and talk about it wherever they gather with other folks, whether it's at a faith-based organization or their place of employment, or um, they can advocate um, for the for the rights of children, but specifically for, for children in foster care. Um, so the only way that we can get people engaged in it is to make sure that we're talking to every possible publication, and we were we were thrilled that the New York Times um, took hold of that as well. Well, it, it, the the whole pivoting that you and you mentioned just a bit of it, but your whole organization had to pivot uh, yes. come the COVID pandemic and the isolation of last March and the continuing isolation for most folks. Yeah, and encouraging those nearly 500 adoption professionals that all work in different um, government structures, different agencies with different rules and regulations responding to the pandemic, never mind the rules and regulations of child welfare. So making sure that we were providing the support to those recruiters um, to say, look, uh, you've got to get in contact with your kids much more regularly. You you may be the one person that that provides this lifeline during this this crazy pandemic of communication, of understanding, of of assurance that that things will go forward. Um, and so we help them to pivot to virtual communications. We've got some great examples of you know recruiters 
who sent a box of books to to some of the kids on their caseload, and then they'd get together, you know, on a on a virtual call and and read a book together, or they'd have a meal together, or they'd they'd drop a, a box lunch off at the front door and go back into their car and then connect on their phone and share a meal together. I mean, all kinds of creative ways, rather than just saying, well, you know, we can't connect with these kids because we can't visit them um, the way that we usually do. Yes, you can. And and the, the the neat thing is is that I think they're having even more connection with the children now they, they, because they realize they can pick up the phone and have a face-to-face conversation. They can get on Zoom and have a face-to-face conversation. They can help the family process through the, the challenges of maybe educational um, access and resources. So they've become really important connectors to these, to these children and youth during the pandemic. Nothing will replace face-to-face communication, right. of, of course, but all of these ways that we've learned to communicate with each other over the last year, uh, I, I don't think we're going to go back to just mm-hmm. one way of communicating. I think you're exactly right. And it's really been an enhancement, quite honestly, to this program for us to learn and learn with our recruiters that in addition, when it is safe to, again, meet with your child face to face, it can be much more convenient to be able to connect with that youth at six o'clock at night, perhaps, or, or, you know, at seven in the morning before they're off to school, if that's what works for that child and for the recruiter, in addition to the face to face contact and encouraging courts. You know, we also stepped in and said, courts, you can go virtually. You do not have to stop these hearings, these adoption hearings, um, and many, 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 many courts across the nation, and not just because of us, but we were certainly a loud voice in that, have, of course, turned to virtual hearings so that there's not this huge backlog in 2022, perhaps, of things that just didn't happen. So uh, in the last five minutes or so that we have, I'd like to switch from focus on the child to focus on the potential adoptive family. Mm-hmm. Um, if somebody's listening to us and they think, you know, I, I never really thought of this. Uh, you know, uh, we're at the stage in our life where maybe this would be a, a good way of uh, of going. What does a, a family do who's interested in perhaps adopting a foster child? I think now more than ever, don't hesitate to reach out to agencies. Don't hesitate to first go online and get as much information as possible, depending on the city or the county that you're in. It might be a private agency or it might be a government agency that you connect with to to start that process of adopting. And certainly at the Dave Thomas Foundation, we can get folks connected We've got a beginner's guide to adoption that they can download and begin to think of those steps. But that first step is learn as much as you can, then connect with your local organization and say, I'm interested in becoming an adoptive parent. I'm interested in becoming a foster parent. What do I need to do? And typically that's filling out an application having a background check done. Um, They will do home studies. And even some of the home studies have gone virtual now, which means they'll check out and make sure that you're simply a safe house. You don't have to be wealthy. You don't have to own your own home. You don't have to be married. But you do have to have a safe home and you do have to be able to provide for this child or children. Um, If you're fostering, there there are certainly financial supports that follow these children. And even once you adopt out of foster care, there are subsidies that follow the majority of these children. Um, and there are there are all kinds of educational supports depending on the state as well. 
so, uh, you know, again, step in, make that first call, get the process going. It may seem a little bit overwhelming at first, but most agencies will also connect you with other folks who have gone through the process so that you can have your own network um, and create your own network. Make sure that the people around you, your your family, your friends, your colleagues, your coworkers, know what you're doing because you will find other people that are doing the same thing. They just haven't talked about it. I think having that supportive network is critical. Um, but don't hesitate now because of COVID. Now's the best time to jump in. Look, we're going to need, we know that uh, uh, the instances of abuse have, reported abuse have gone down significantly. I don't think it's because our prevention efforts have been so stellar over the past year. I think it's because families have been disconnected from those points of reporting school doctors. And so once things have opened back up again, we're going to have, I think, floodgates of kids coming into the system. And we're absolutely going to need safe and loving foster and adoptive parents. So if a potential uh, adoptive uh, parent or family uh, says, we're, we're interested in doing this, does somebody help them say, well, are you interested in taking on some siblings? Are you interested in taking on somebody with a, a special need. Uh, it, how does that work? Because not every parent who is a good parent can maybe deal with someone with special needs. Absolutely. And that's part of that discovery and education process with the agency that folks associate. Um, they will they will ask, you know, are you willing to take siblings? Are you willing to just be an emergency placement? Are you willing to um, uh, take a child with special needs? And if you're not, no one's going to make you take a child that you don't feel comfortable having in your family, depending on what children you may already have in your home. You may be thinking of birth order and what fits with my, with my other kids. So that's absolutely, we want families as um, happy as possible, but we want people to stretch a little bit and think we know we've seen time and again, someone who said, I just want, you know, a, a, a five to eight year old and I only want one child. And two years later, they've, they've adopted a family of three that includes a young teen. It happens. I'm not saying no one ever forces that on someone, but I think going in with an open mind, absolutely tell people what you want, but be open to other opportunities as well. Rita, congratulations, uh, Dave Thomas Foundation, 10,000 adoptions from foster care. That's astounding. We wish you 10,000 more times 10. Thank you so much. And thank you for the time today. It's such an important conversation, and we're so grateful to have it with you. Today, we've been talking with Rita Sorenen, CEO of the Dave Thomas Foundation for Adoption, about some of the issues being confronted with adoption during the COVID crisis. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also was available at the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it to one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have any questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover in the future, 
please direct them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Music.